glad that you're here and that you're paying attention, I hope, this morning to God's Word. So once again, it's our plea for everyone at home to try to minimize the distractions. By now, you guys should be pros at this, but I'm still aware that if you have children in the house, you know, probably one's in the bathroom and another one's screaming at his brother, and I know how that goes. Uh, but, but try to keep distractions to a minimum so that you can focus on God's Word this morning. And I'm excited to come to the conclusion this morning of this wonderful portion of Scripture, which is John 3.16 all the way through 21. Uh, we, we, as we've said before, we've kind of focused a detailed understanding of John 3.16 in order to really put the rest of the gospel in context. And once again, it was, it was God planning, God doing, and God giving out of the abundance of His love for His people. So this is an important passage and an important, an important time to really consider what it means for Jesus Christ to be in the world and to have been given to the world as a gift. This entire time we've been discussing salvation. And we're going to finish with that today because salvation may sound only spiritual, but it has everything to do with the life and especially what we're living in today. My friends, this world needs salvation. We need to be saved. And so what salvation entails in this context is of extreme importance. And, and friends, the, the, the conversation that we should be having with everyone that's watching as, as Christians or non-Christians is, what is salvation and are you saved? And, and you, you say, well, how, how, how do we know? How do, how do we know if we are saved? How do we know if we're right with God? And, and so that will be explained as we we see what this, this context puts forward and we understand that salvation comes from God. And that's why this passage that we are studying reflects the implications of the conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus. If you, if you remember way back at the beginning of chapter 3, we have this man, Nicodemus, between verses three, uh, 1 through 15. Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, the the Pharisee, this religious ruler of his day, about the new life, or what we've come to understand is salvation that only comes from above, which means that it comes from God and through His Spirit. A life received, once again, not through human achievement, which is why understanding Nicodemus is so important, but from God's Spirit. His credentials, as far as Nicodemus goes, are basically meaningless to Jesus. His religious upbringing and devotion to the law could not help him, especially with this understanding of entrance into the kingdom, which is why Christ and which is why Jesus is very clear on this. So remember, in this context, he is one of those that comes to Jesus half-heartedly. This is Nicodemus approaching Jesus with some type of belief that we read in chapter 2, verses 25 and on. Uh, People that believed in Jesus only because of what he did 
and, and showed as far as miracles go. But they just really came to him on the, on the surface, on a superficial level. And so Nicodemus is in that way representative of many of us as a representation of humanity approaching Jesus at times because he may have something good to offer. And so there is a belief. And friends, you look around and especially in our time, everyone or it seems that most people would believe in Jesus. There's famous people taking pictures in front of churches with Bibles in their hands. There's people that, that pretend or that have a concept of who Jesus is and say they believe Him or believe in Him, but their lives say something completely opposite. So there is a superficial sense of knowledge of Christ which doesn't equate to true, authentic faith. And that's why in these first 15 verses of chapter 3, Nicodemus is so important for us to understand. Understanding him, we get to understand everything about salvation because Nicodemus was a perfect religious, law-abiding Jewish citizen. And he had everything needed according to the law to achieve salvation. But Jesus has none of it. Jesus desires none of that. Jesus desires true, authentic faith in the name, as we read in this passage of Scripture. So we don't come to God through human achievement, but by the reworking of our lives or the transformation of our lives by the Spirit of God. Spirit who renews us and transforms us. Authentic transformation comes only through the Spirit of God. He makes us new and gifts us the power of faith. Jesus is a gift from God. And God also gifts us a, the gift of faith, as we will read later on. And it is by our faith in Christ, not by human enlightenment, that we are saved. So once again, we don't wake up one morning and say, oh, I think I'm going to follow Jesus, or I think I believe in Jesus, and, 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 and just live however we want. There, there need be a spiritual transformation that occur, occurs in every person's soul and heart. And so this section is, is very simple to, to, to get through. Between verses 16 and 17, we, we come to an understanding of the mission of Christ, of Jesus. In verse 18, we come to an understanding of judgment. And the last verses, 19 through 21, we see the conflict or the implications of, of, of Jesus entering the world. So once again, in verse 16 through 17, we understand the mission of Christ. In verse 18, we, we understand His judgment and the judgment that's upon the world or the condemnation upon the world. And in verses 19 through 21, we'll, we'll have this conflict occurring because of Jesus coming into the world. So if you go with me to verse 17, we'll start there since we spent several weeks already on John 3.16. But in verse 17, well, I'll read it for you. It says, For God did not send His Son. And 
That's a very interesting uh, way to start. Once again, in verse 16, in the ESV, it's the same thing. For God so loved the world. In verse 17, we have the same thing occurring. For God did not send His Son. So we have God's love reflected in the gift of Christ. And now we have the sending, the mission of Christ, which is clearly stated in verse 17. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. That is why Christ came. That is the mission of Jesus Christ. He was sent not to condemn, but to save. See, the world needs a Savior. You and I need a Savior. If we just take a look around our current day, we'll realize we are in need of salvation. Everything that's happening, friends, these are scary times. There's things going on in Seattle, Washington. Uh, there's things going on all around us that, that are, are, can, get, can push us to our faith limits. But once again, we understand that within us, we won't figure this out for ourselves. We need a Savior. And so the biblical perspective of saving is, is more than saving from a social justice platform, more than saving from a racial background, more than saving on, on, on just injustice in the world. What we need saving from, according to the Bible and Scripture, is from sin and eternal judgment, which sin, of course, is the root of all evil. What verses 16 and 17 make clear is very important then. Because the only one then that can save us from sin and eternal judgment is the Son of God. Which is why He is a gift to this world in 16. And He is sent in verse 17 to save. That's the first time we see the word sozo or the, the verb to save in, John, in the Gospel of John. That is the mission clearly depicted and played out for the Son of God. Unsurprisingly, though, the world in, first century, uh, in the first century culture, like in our 21st century culture, has its own set of saviors. They, were, they managed to not see Christ as a savior, and that's why there was conflict when Christ claimed he was the savior of the world and the son of God. Because the world had its own saviors. I mean, ever since the first century and even before the first century and, 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 and before Christ, there was chaos in the world. See, see, friends, chaos isn't something that we're just experiencing in the 21st century. If you rewind to the 20th century in World War I between 1918 and then in World War II in the, in the late 30s and early 40s, we, we've been chaotic. This world has been chaotic all the time. And so the world has managed to create saviors for themselves. In a religious or philosophical realm, especially in the first century, the Greek world had their own gods to intervene and save the mortals. 
These gods are saviors and protectors. I mean, just think of Zeus. Zeus, according to the first century Stoic philosopher Cornutus, said about Zeus, all things come into being and are preserved by Zeus. So he is a protector and he is the one that creates all things. For the Gnostics, another philosophical realm from Greek culture, the Gnostics thought knowledge saves. And primarily, what does knowledge save us from? Knowledge, knowledge saves and frees our souls from death. You see, for the first century, death was the ultimate curse. And so they sought salvation from death. And for the Gnostics, it was knowledge. The more they knew, the more they became like God and therefore can be saved from death. In the mystery religions of the first, first and second century, uh, they claimed that one is saved through the sharing of the experience of the dying and rising God through the actions of the cult. This participation in the divine being attains a life that extends beyond the death. So that's why all these sacrifices and, and cult movements were being birthed during this time. There's also human saviors. Can you believe it or not? In the first century, especially, and even before the first century, uh, the, the Roman imperial cult was very high, starting with Julius Caesar, which was considered a god and an absolute ruler and savior of the world. That is why the Roman emperors would receive worship. They were God figures and they would bring salvation, starting with Julius Caesar. The Jewish nation is a little bit unique, but they understood what salvation meant and they understood that they needed to be saved. They were taught to live under the watchful eye of the Lord as their protector and deliverer, deliverer mainly because they could not save themselves. And this is true, friends. No one could save themselves from chaos. I love what Hosea chapter 13 verse 10 says, Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? And this is God telling the people of, of, of Israel, like, you guys look to your kings now. Who, who's going to save you? The Lord showed himself strong in their weakness. And for example, even in Gideon's time, with Gideon's army, was so small that they would not boast in their own strength. This is important. In the, in the book of Judges, this story is depicted. And in chapter 7 of, of Judges, verse 2, the word of God says, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. And in verse 7, it says, The Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who left, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let the others go every man to his home. What God was doing here was minimizing the army in order to show himself as Savior. This is the original 
300 where they went into war, war against thousands of people and they won. Not because they were military skilled or because they were the best army, but because God was with them. God was the one that delivered them. They could not have done it on their own. And so it is by God's power that Israel is continuously saved from their enemies. Look at what Psalm chapter 44 beautifully states. I'll start from verse 3. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can, I, can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put the shame to those who hate us. That is what God does. He saves and delivers his people. For Israel, the astrologers, the diviners, and, and, and the, the nations and the idols are powerless to save. Therefore, the world saw Israel as unique. This small little nation is unique. Deuteronomy says it like this, chapter 33, verse 29. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help. And the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon their backs. This is a unique group who is continuously saved by their God. He was the one that delivered them. But like in our current world and in our current culture, Israel is no different from us. For Israel was also easily tempted and diverted their attention away from God to themselves and others. Judges chapter 10 verses 12 says this, and I'll be reading a couple of verses here. The Sid Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Verse 13, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Verse 14, go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Then Isaiah clarifies this a little bit more in chapter 17, verse 10. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. We'll stop there. So clearly Israel was tempted and they sought ulterior gods and they forgot their very own God. The God who would save them, the God who delivered them was often forgotten. And so their attention was placed and their faith was placed and all of their money at times were placed in other nations and in other false gods to bring them to deliverance. What a shame. But Israel also had this eschatological hope. 
a future hope, and a future Savior. I mean, if you read all the Old Testament, you'll see this time and time again. And we've said this, mentioned this time and time again too. Even when we studied through the book of Hosea, which was an early, uh, uh, an early moment in Israel's history of, of their distraction and, and deviations from, from God. And, and we've seen it time and time again. But, but towards the end of the Old Testament, we have this notion that there will come a Savior to redeem the entire kingdom, a, de a defeated kingdom, a defeated people before God. And so this eschatological hope was what the psalmist called the horn of salvation. And this horn of salvation, as depicted in Psalm chapter 18, verse 2, and Micah as well says the same thing. This horn of salvation is interesting because Luke in the New Testament mentions who this Savior would be. So for the Old Testament Israelite nation and Judah, and, and Judah, they sought to the horn of their salvation as their messianic expectation of salvation. And Luke says in chapter 1, verse 69, that, has, that he has been raised up a horn of salvation for us, in the house of his servant, David. So who is this horn of salvation? Zechariah prophesies that it is Jesus. It is not John the Baptist. It is Jesus as the horn of salvation. The one who will come from the house of David. Who will bring salvation. And then Luke clarifies what we will be saved from or what the world would be saved from in Luke 177 to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their say it with me sins 70 uh, verse 78 because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of Peace. What Christ saves us from is our sin, this world's sin, in order to walk in the way of peace. I want you to get that this morning. Because as Luke says, a dark world, we are guided by God through this horn of salvation that will walk with us and guide us and forgive us our darkness, our sin, so that our eyes can be opened and so that we can walk according to light, which means walking in the ways of peace. So that's why this recollection of that voice when we hear, blessed is the man in the Beatitudes, blessed is the man who, the, blessed are the peace pronouncers or the peace proclaimers, those who announce peace to the world. What, what it's really saying is it's not a screaming out for social justice. It's not a, 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 a trying to bring justice to the world. It, it is a cry out for salvation from sin. Sin eradicated, sin erased from our lives will make us walk in the way of peace. We'll give the people peace. 
will give the nation peace. But it is an unrepentant nation that will never walk in peace because they are still guided by darkness. They will never see until they repent from their sin. And so, therefore, that is what Jesus has done for us. He is the horn of salvation, which through His tender mercy of God, as the sunrise will visit us from on high and give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the ways of peace. Clearly, Jesus is the only way to salvation and the only one who can save us and this world from our sin. I started off the Gospel of John with this wonderful question. Who can save you? And at this point, who's going to save you, my friend? Who has saved you? Or what have you sought for salvation? It's, you're, you and I are no different from our ancestors and from our early fathers back from hundreds of, of years ago, thousands of years ago. If it's not Christ, we are seeking salvation. There is something that is feeding us this false sense of security and this false sense of salvation. Who is it? Who will you turn to salvation? Who will save you? And who will save you from your sin? Who can convict, my friends, this world of their sin? Who can convict this world of injustice? Who can convict this world of their prejudice and hatred and racism? Who? Some placards with, with messages on them? Uh, people screaming at the top of their lungs? They can't do it. It needs to be the light of Jesus Christ to bring people and this nation to salvation. Who has the power to right all the wrongs in this world? Are we going to do it ourselves? How many marches will we have to do? Will it be a new world order to bring stability to this nation or to this world? Is it anarchy? Is it the government? Who's going to save us? If it's not Jesus Christ, we will seek salvation in far less inferior beings. The primary mission of the Son is salvation. And so therefore, He does not come, in verse 17, to condemn. Judgment comes as a natural consequence to people's negative reaction and rejection to Christ. That is why in chapter 9 of John, Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see me may see, and those who see may become blind. So there will come a point of judgment. Many people that, liked a, that like a soft God and a soft Jesus always say, well, Jesus came to love the world. He didn't come to condemn the world. Well, in chapter 9, he says, I, I am going to condemn. Condemnation and judgment will come to be. And it will happen. So in verse 18 now, we get this concept of judgment. 17 clarifies the mission. Verse 18 clarifies the judgment. 
So if you read with me, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So condemnation in this world already exists, primarily because people do not believe. There's unbelief. They are guilty of their own unbelief. So when God judges and when Christ judges, He will always judge correctly because He is just. People are already condemned. That's what we have to remember. When Christ comes, He doesn't come to convince good people to be saved. Christ comes into a dark world that is already condemned by their sin to bring them to salvation. Those who reject that, those who, who do not believe, well, they stay in the same state. They are still condemned, as verse 18 says. They are already condemned. And so salvation is part of God's natural love. The way God loves is depicted in the way He sends His Son as a gift to bring people to salvation. Condemnation, therefore, is natural to darkness. A dark world is already condemned. Freedom of condemnation comes by belief in the name of the only Son of God. That's what verse 18 clearly testifies. That's why Jesus is the only way. He, in His name, this name is Jesus. He is the only way to salvation, not the plethora of other false gods and false religions, and even not yourself. You don't save yourself by your name. And so this name is Jesus, and that's why, as we have read previously in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, where, where the prophecy goes, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name, what? Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. We are only saved in Jesus Christ. There is no judgment, no condemnation for the one who believes in the name. But for the one who stands opposed in unbelief, they place themselves in that judgment. It is not the Son who declared the verdict, but the person's own unbelief. That's why this krisis verb in, in Greek, which is to judge or to condemn, has this sense of law to it. And so the verdict, the NIV uses the verdict here, and, and this verdict going with the same theme of being in a courtroom, it's not Jesus that does it, it's our own unbelief. We ourselves place our, ourselves in that unbelief and, and in that condemnation. And so that's why this word faith or be stale to have, to believe, is so important. In verse, in verse 18, the word is used three times repeatedly. It's an action verb. It's a word that, that, that makes us understand action needs to take place in order for one to be saved. One is saved through believing. Verses 1 through 8 in John chapter 3 are highly important because they remind us that one is born new or receives salvation and a new life from above in order to enter the kingdom of God. Verses 12 and 15 of John chapter 3 are highly important because they bring us to the notion of faith. 
they must believe. Not like in chapter 2, verse 25, where people believed in Jesus because of what they saw. Here, belief is from above. It is a spiritual transformation that occurs by the Spirit of God. And I'll clarify that in a bit. Birth from above is the miracle of the work of the Spirit. So we do believe in miracles, friends. The miracle of salvation is the greatest miracle that there can be. How can a person that hates God and lives their, their sin-filled life turn to God only by the work of the Spirit? It's a miracle. The person, therefore, through this miracle, must respond to that call, to God's call. And so those who hear Jesus must respond to him and there will be those who will favorably go towards Jesus, but there will be those who will remain condemned by their own lack of faith. So faith doesn't happen with one's own working. It isn't like we can figure it out and and make it make sense to us where we can sit down, evaluate, ponder and consider and have these intellectual scholastic conversations with one another so what do you think about salvation what is salvation it isn't an enlightenment it isn't the the thought it isn't something that we could in our intelligence achieve where we can say well you know what it does make sense yes jesus should be the only savior and yeah okay so now i am convinced I will follow Jesus. Uh, It doesn't work that way. Faith comes by the working of the Spirit, and it does a transformational work within us. See, pastors aren't here to convince you to follow Jesus. We plead with you, follow Jesus, and and go to Jesus, because we know that's the only way to save you from your sin. But we're not here to convince you and say, come on, look at it, I mean, come on, think about it, think about it. No, we're here to plead with you and let you know that you're a sinner that needs to be saved by Jesus Christ. We're not here to fight for your attention or convict you by ourselves. Faith is the means by which the new life or this born-again concept enters. And that only comes through Jesus Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit. That is why there's much emphasis on believing and having faith. But the new birth does not come based on human decision like we've mentioned. That's why many people say that they have come to Christ. And many people we have witnessed raise their hand in a service or, 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 or go to the front in a service and, and say, hey, yeah, okay, I feel it's an emotional response to something. But a couple of weeks later, they're back at the same things. Uh, and the following year, they've already abandoned Christ and they're off doing their own life. Faith is the ultimate work of the Spirit. See, I can't scare you to follow Jesus. I could easily, and we could easily use these moments in in our current history of using the pandemic and the racial riots and and all of these movements to scare people to come to Christ. We we can be preaching, hey friends, you see, this world is, is falling apart and Jesus is coming soon. And even though I believe Christ is coming back pretty soon. 
I'm not going to hear, I'm not going to scare you into following Christ. I'm not going to be teaching an apocalyptic sermon just to scare you to come to Christ. It is the work of the Spirit that will ultimately cause transformation. As pastors, we disciple people in the Word of God, and the church disciples people in the Word of God, but we never cause transformation. We'll never change you. If you don't believe, you're not going to believe. If you feel like you still have to do certain things and sin and, and, and feel comfortable in it, I am never going to be able to change your mind. And frankly, my friends, I don't want to change your mind. Because if I change your mind, someone else could change your mind later on. It needs to be Christ. It needs to be the Holy Spirit that convicts you of your sin so that you could turn from it and go to Christ, not me. So John's gospel is a reminder that we will face a final judgment. But that judgment will be ratified by the unbeliever by themselves. The perfect tense verb in verse 18, do not believe, which is that when they do not believe or not have believed, means that the unbeliever has already received his sentence. It's a perfect tense. It is a consequence of an ongoing, it's a consequence that is ongoing, sorry. They are judged by their own unbelief. That's why that's very important to understand that. And so, as we have examined judgment in verse 18, now we have the natural conflict of light and darkness here. So we know what we're battling up against as Christians and, and what Christ has come into. That's why I love what verses 19 through 21 say. In verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen his works have been carried out in God. Once again, done in God. John tells us the reason of unbelief is so prevalent is due to the fact that Darkness hates the light. That is because their works, their lifestyle is evil. Matthew clearly says this in chapter 15, verse 19, For out of our heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. That's who we are. That's what's in us. And so Christ comes into a world of darkness. And that's why Christ is depicted as in chapter 1, where we studied so much, as the light of the world. Contrasted with John chapter 3, verse 16, God loved the world. He gave His Son to save it. Here, in verses 19 and on, the world loves darkness. Evil is the action side of darkness. Darkness is what it is. Evil is what? does this is the world that rejects god and christ and the light so that's why evil abides in darkness and it rejects and pushes away in verse 20 we remember that the world cannot come out of the light and it can't come to the light because it hates it read with, read it with me one more time for everyone who does wicked things hates the light. You hear that? It hates the light. 
and does not come to the light. It will never approach the light because it hates it. Why does it hate it? Verse 20. Its works should be exposed. They hate it because deep down inside, they love their sin. A dark world that has evil as its action will love to do what they have been doing for their entire life. Their lifestyle represents one that hates God. And, and it, we don't have to be the biggest sinners to show that we are enemies of God or hate God. And, and people may say, man, that's strong language. Like, you know, I, I have friends that don't come to church, but they seem... Like they're good people and, and they're not killing people. They're not cheating on their wives. They're, they're, they don't do drugs. They don't sell drugs. They, they, they're, you know, they're not involved with any type of, of gambling. I mean, they're genuinely good people. They, they help charities. They give food to the poor. And, and so, you know, I don't think they hate God. I think they might be con confused. And well... I understand that sentiment because I know many people in the same way. But what the Bible clearly de depicts is everyone that lives in darkness, which, is, which are those people that have not come to the light. So people that I know and family members that I know and people and friends that, that I know that are still in darkness, well, what does it say? They hate light. Ask yourselves why your friends have not come to Christ. Ask yourselves why your family members have not come to to Christ. At the deep down core of sin is hatred to anything that is good. The light of Christ shines and they reject because they like their lifestyle. Those who do come to the light, as verse 21 says, comes to the light and their works have been clearly seen and have been carried out by God. They live a life that represents the light. That's why, don't, don't get it confused, friends. A lot of people say they're Christian. Everyone says they're Christian. But not everyone lives according to the light. And why? Because in the light we can see what that means. We, we see the actions. We see the lifestyles. These people do not live according to the regulations of light. They don't love God. They still hate Him. And that's why their words are contradictory. Their, their, their actions are contradictory to the message they proclaim. So, so not because every, somebody holds up a Bible, not because someone knows a couple of verses from Scripture, that doesn't mean anything. Look at their lives. They must be carried out by God. Their actions and their works should show what a lifestyle depicts to walk with Christ. So, I want to end with this. In Ephesians chapter 1. If you could turn there in your Bible, in Ephesians chapter 1. Before we read that, what we have to understand is where we're at in our life today. And the world that we live in can shape us. And so if we tend to be governed by the temptations of this world, and if we tend to align ourselves to the fights and to the 
cryouts of this world, little by little, friends, what we, what we will begin to see as Christians is that we will become like Israel, where we will grow impatient with God not doing anything. Or we will grow impatient because we believe God is not doing anything. And so therefore, we'll align our steps to this dark world. And little by little, we'll start raising up our hands as the world does. Not only fighting for causes, but we will also raise our fists in anger towards God. So we, we must be very careful and cautious to walk in light and not in darkness. But this comes by hearing. That's why we preach. That's why the gospel needs to be preached every day. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, there's that action word again, in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen.